If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, February the 15th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio today here on the campus of Stanford University is Dr. Lanhee Chen. He's the Hoover Institution's David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow, and he's Director of the Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in Stanford's Public Policy Program. Lonnie Chen is a regular on the Sunday Morning Talk Circuit, and he appears often on the nation's leading print opinion pages, and that includes an op-ed he co-authored earlier this week for the New York Times on Republicans and health care. In 2012, Lonnie Chen was Policy Director for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Lonnie, your boss is in the news in a big way these days. He is. He is, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard <laughs> if we had this, we've been sitting here a year ago. Would we've been talking about Mitt Romney running for the Senate? I I don't know. I I always felt personally that um, he had another chapter left in public service, mm-hmm. and I know that he is so civic minded and cares so deeply about the country that it, it was always something for him that um, felt like a, a potential opportunity. So I I, I don't know if. You know, sitting sort of a year ago, we would have been able to predict this exactly, but right. it's certainly something that's of interest to him. Yeah, it's interesting. So preparation for this long, he, I went back and I went to the big book of presidential campaigns and I looked up what happened to every runner-up. And I went all the way back to John Adams and started tracing forward. And here's what I found. There is such a thing as a second act in American politics. Uh, 1812, DeWitt Clinton loses to James Madison. He goes on to become the governor of New York. Uh, 1844, Henry Clay loses to James K. Polk. He becomes a senator in 1849. John C. Fremont, first Republican presidential nominee, 1856, loses to Buchanan. He ends up becoming governor of the Arizona Territory one day. William Howard Taft, as president, Mm -hmm. loses. He becomes a chief justice. Hubert Humphrey, more recently, in 1968. Mm -hmm. He becomes a senator in 1970. But Lonnie, DeWitt Clinton was a New Yorker who becomes governor of New York. Henry Clay was a Kentuckian who'd been in the House for a million years, Speaker of the House. He becomes senator. He's still representing his state. Um, Humphrey, a Minnesotan, goes back into Congress. Mitt Romney is actually representing a different state this time in Congress, a different body. He goes from being a governor of Massachusetts to a presidential candidate to now a Senate hopeful, presumptively the winner of this fall. This is new territory for American politics. Well, but I think people have to remember Mitt Romney has a deep history in Utah. Right. Um, he went to college at Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. He was obviously a big part of rescuing the Olympic Games mm-hmm. in 2002, the last Olympics, I think, to be on U.S. soil. Right. Uh, he has had a residence in uh, suburban Salt Lake City for the better part of the last decade or so. So he, he's been... Uh, a, a Utah, and it's a state that means a lot to him. That he's got heritage in. He's right. uh, got kids that live there. So it, it, it the notion that um, you know th- this might be different from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. but I think there are a lot of reasons why um, his running to represent the people of Utah makes a lot of sense. I think there's an easy pushback, by the way, for the carpetbagger issue. Bobby Kennedy faces when he ran for Senate in New York in 1964. Uh, Hillary faced this when she ran for Senate in New York in, in 2000, and Romney's already heard a little bit of it as well. I think actually the chairman of the Republican Party in Utah uh, talked about this. It was interesting, by the way, I don't know if you saw this, but he subsequently came, apologized. Subsequently actually. apologized <laughs> the same day for it. So yeah. I think he learned his lesson. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's an easy pushback for this, Lonnie, and that's Orrin Hatch in this regard. Orrin Hatch went to college at Brigham Young. Orrin Hatch was raised in Pennsylvania. 
Orrin Hatch leaves BYU. He goes to law school, I believe, at the University of Pittsburgh. He becomes an attorney in Pennsylvania. Orrin Hatch, lot, he moves out to Utah in 1969, runs seven years later for the Senate. Mm -hmm. By the way, where were you in 1976? Uh, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> you were not I on was, the planet. I was negative two. You were not on the planet Orrin Hatch was. That's when he first ran yeah. for the Senate in 1976. Ironically, the issue he used in 1976 was his opponent had been in the Senate too long. How about that? How about 42 that? 42 years wow. later, though, Hatch is stepping down for Romney. So I think the carpetbagging thing, I think that goes away. The more interesting question, though, is going to be where Mitt Romney fits in the mosaic of one Donald Trump. Hmm. You talk to Mitt Romney. Tell me what Mitt Romney thinks about Donald Trump. Look, I think that um, it's natural for people to try and draw conclusions, maybe in a sort of monolithic way, mm -hmm. about how how Mitt would approach the president. The reality is is much more complicated in this sense. There are going to be times when Mitt's going to very much agree with the president on policy. You know, wh whether it's economic policy, uh, perhaps even sometimes on foreign policy. And in those situations and in those times, I think you will find that um, Mitt Romney is going to do what he can to be helpful, certainly to the policy agenda uh, and what the president's trying to accomplish. Now, he's also an independent thinker in the sense that if there are situations that come up where he disagrees with the president, he will not hesitate to voice that disagreement. Right. So I think, I think it's going to be quite nuanced in a lot of ways. I think it's going to be difficult to oversimplify, which I know a lot of people in the media have been trying to do. But that, that's just not who Romney is, and right. it's not the kind of senator he will be. Right. I mean, you're aware of the narrative. The narrative is that Romney is going to step into the Senate, assuming he wins. He steps in in 2019, and he picks up where Jeff Flake left off, and he maybe steps in where John McCain is not picking up. Either. In other words, he becomes, he becomes the person the media go to looking for the anti-Romney. Yeah, I mean, anti -Trump quote. But, but, but even that view is quite, is quite facile in the mm -hmm. sense that you know, Flake and McCain voted with the president probably, what, 70 percent of the time, 80 percent of the time. Right. And and because they spoke out when they felt uncomfortable or they felt that there were things that they disagreed with, somehow they get they get painted with this moniker. I mean, look, I think, as I said, I don't think Mitt will hesitate to speak his mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that will that will mitigate both ways, both in, in some situations for the president and in some situations uh, not not with him. Mm -hmm. So you ran his policy in 2012. Um, to the extent there's a Romney band, is the band still out there right now? Um, you mean in terms of people who support him or people who worked with him? People who worked with him. I assume, for example, he has, he has a speed dial, if you will. He has a short list of advisors, and you're one of those people who he calls. So this would be his 2012 people. They're still they're Yeah, still I mean, he has, he has engendered a tremendous amount of loyalty over his time in, in, in public service. Right. And there are a lot of people who I've talked to mm -hmm. um, in, you know, in the last two or three months alone who've said, you know, I'd be happy to do anything to help Mitt Romney. And I, I, I know that that network continues, that if he ever needs anything, mm -hmm. he will have people to rely on. But he's going to be really focused in this race on Utah, right. in case you haven't heard. He's going to be really focused on um, meeting with and having the opportunity to speak to people in Utah and to, mm -hmm. and to consider the issues that Utahns are really, really concerned about. And so, yes, there's a network out there, right. but what I would say is that this is a very different race from 2012, and it's going to require a very different set of folks and a very different uh, set of things to be successful. I think people forget that he ran for the Senate in 1994 against Ted Kennedy, yeah. and he ran for governor of Massachusetts, so he knows how to do He knows how to earn it. He knows, he knows how, how to, to earn it. Politics. Yeah, and, 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 and he will. He'll go out there and do it. Yeah, interesting. 
When he goes to Washington, though, a model which I have in the back of my mind, Lon, he is when Ted Kennedy was in the Senate. Mm. And what did Ted Kennedy do? Ted Kennedy had a very whip-smart staff, and Kennedy would actually dip into his own pocket and pay extra to get very bright people. So that's part of what made Kennedy a very special senator, and just people knew that he had just sort of a turbocharged staff. Could you see Romney doing the same? I, I think he will have access to whoever he would like, mm-hmm. um, and I think there'll be a lot of people who would love to serve uh, a, a Senator Romney uh, if he's fortunate enough to be elected. I think that he, he is going to have the opportunity to weigh in, certainly on the issues right. that affect Utah, but beyond that, he's going to be asked to comment on all sorts of stuff, and so he's going to have to make a decision about where he wants to focus his time and energy, but getting access to top-notch staff will not be a problem. Right. So let's not get too far here, but if you were looking at him in committees, where would you direct him? Well, I think a lot of it's going to have to be a combination of uh, different equities. I mean, one of it's going to be, most importantly, how can he serve the people of Utah? Mm -hmm. And what are the issues that they're going to be most concerned about, whether economic issues, economic development issues, public lands issues, the opioid crisis has not... Uh, avoided the state of Utah. There are a lot of different uh, issues that I think he's going to have to focus on in that regard. And then just Mitt personally, I think, has always been interested in questions of how America can lead around the world, um, how America can have a leading economy. And and that would suggest that there's lots of different options for him. Now, you know, he's going to be the junior senator from Utah. So we'll have right. to see where the committee assignments come out if, if, if he gets elected. But I think um, there's any number of different issues where I think he could contribute to the public dialogue. Right. But he would not be an ordinary junior senator. In fact, one thing which he has been speculating about, Lon, he is being chair of the NRSC, which for those who don't follow Washington politics is the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And what does that job mean? That means that you raise money for Senate candidates, you recruit Senate candidates, we don't have Republican incumbents. It's a huge responsibility. Yeah, and 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 the NRSC is uh, you know is being led very ably this cycle by Cory Gardner of Colorado. Right. Um, you know, I'm doing some work with the NRSC now uh, on uh, a couple issues where uh, you know we we'd love to be able to ensure that all of our Republican candidates have access to the policy information they need to be successful. So right. um, I think any speculation about the role that Mitt might play in that regard is way premature. And it's yeah. frankly not something that's even on his mind right now. Right. But it's part, I think, what you're going to see of Mitt Romney just constantly in the news. Oh, yeah. Regard. Sure. In 2020, for example, Jody Ernst is up for re-election, right, in Iowa. So Senator Romney, if he's the chair, you know where this is going to go. Senator Romney's the chair of the NRSC, and he's doing his job, and he's going to Iowa to campaign for her and help her. Headline, Romney in Iowa. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there we go. I know. It's it's uh, it's interminable. But, but right. you know, this is the way our politics has become, as, as you know, Bill. It's very um, – people get very excited and worked up over mm-hmm. the littlest of things, even when there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just caution listeners on this. I mean, Mitt Romney is running to be the United States senator from Utah, mm-hmm. and, and let's just take that at face value. How is Ann Romney these days? I, I think she's doing quite well. Um, you know, she has been – uh, just so graceful mm-hmm. during her entire time in public life. And uh, she wrote a great book a couple years ago. She's got a, another a great cookbook out. Uh, and, and she's just been um, just a tremendous sort of source of, um, of strength and energy for, for, for Romney, for Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. and for the entire Romney family. So uh, best as I know, she's doing quite well and, and very supportive of what Mitt's doing now. Okay. So Mitt Romney will unfortunately get dragged into talks about 2020 challenges to try. Yeah. 
What do you make of the idea of a Republican challenging Trump in 2020? So, I mean, setting aside Romney and anything right. related is, to that for a moment, Romney, I mean, I think I think that there will there will end up being someone who will challenge the president. Sure. Um, now, the question is how serious that challenge is and what events may intervene between now and then to generate serious competition for the president. Looking at it at this point, I think anybody who did it would be foolish and I think, frankly, would be unsuccessful in, in, in a pretty massive way. Um, that's because I think the economy is doing well. I think right. the president on policy has done a lot of things to, that, that conservatives should be pleased about. So I, I think for a challenger to come in, that person would almost have to be a challenger of an independent stripe rather than of a Republican right. primary stripe. But, but when you say foolish, you mean they're not going to they're not going to steal the nomination from him. They're not going to steal a nomination from him. And, and, and we all see what happens when you go up against Donald Trump in a primary competition. You know, you, you end up with a brand. And that brand generally isn't positive, right? right? And so the, the question for any ambitious Republican politician is mm -hmm. how far do you want to get into this fight with Donald Trump? And, right. and I would suggest that I think uh, for most Republicans, the answer would be it's not a fight they want to engage. Do you see, without naming names, do you see any sitting Republican office holders right now who would be in office come 2020, Lonnie, who would challenge Trump in a primary? <laughs> You know, there the the name you always hear bandied about is Ben Sass. Right. Um, I, I senator from Nebraska. Yeah, I think he. I you know, look, I think I I don't I don't know anything about what his plans are, but mm -hmm. I think you know even he would be very very um, circumspect and thoughtful about whether it's a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I think one of the things that Sass has been great about is is speaking up when he has a concern, and I think that's been noted by by people around his state and around the country. Um, you know, some have said Jeff Flake might be thinking about it now that he's the senator from Arizona is leaving the U.S. Senate this year. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know who it might be. The names you hear tossed around, if I had to guess, Bill, it's probably going to be someone that we're not talking about at all right really? now. Really? Yeah. I, th I think it's going to be someone that comes out of the blue. A and as I said, if it is the case that the president continues to be on the trajectory he's on now, which I would argue is a pretty good one for him as far as re-election is concerned. Right. Um, I, I, I just think it's going to be somebody who's looking to make a name and they don't mind kind of going out there and, 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 and taking the hits. I think it's a two-tier question. I think it's a question of whether or not a Republican will run against Trump trying to take the nomination away from Trump. And I agree with you. It's going to be fruitless if you try to do it. Republican incumbent presidents are powerful, powerful creatures. And the party is just usually not in the habit of taking them down. Look, Gerald Ford survived a challenge from Ronald Reagan. So, you know, you have to find somebody who had the stature Reagan did in 76 to even get close to it. I think the more intriguing question, though, is whether a former Republican, somebody could walk away from the Republican Party and then run in 2020 as an independent and not run in the primaries, but yeah. run in the general election as sort of a death star, if you will. And Flake comes to mind and John Kasich comes to mind as well. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't know what his plans are, but it's pretty clear that uh, he has staked out a position which is pretty hostile to the president in right. many ways. Um, you know, his strategist is at a back and forth with one of the president's strategists about um, about some issues, and and Kasich obviously has the book out. I think it's called A Third Way, or maybe maybe it's called something that suggests that he's. Uh, yeah. Looking at options, I, it's entirely possible, Bill, that if there is a challenge, it will come from from a former Republican. But right. within the confines of the nominating process, it's it's going to be tough. But such a challenge, Lonhe, would it be policy based or personality based? This is this is the yeah. problem I see with the anti-Trump movement right now. It is so focused on 
tweeting and his demeanor and his disposition, they're not fighting him on taxes. They're not fighting him on immigration. They're not fighting him on foreign policy. It's just personality-driven. Well, it's style. The, the, yeah. the critique has come down to style. And I think if you, if you ask people who still oppose the president who consider themselves conservatives, mm-hmm. um, they would say something to the effect that it's impossible to divorce the style from the substance. You know, right. I think all evidence has been to the contrary, that in fact, you know, a lot of people are and that the, the, the accomplishments of the administration will also last on. The policy accomplished with the administration will also extend past the president's term. So whether that's taxes, certainly judicial nominations, and, and yes, has the president affected the scope and tenor of the presidency? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, but obviously, it is possible to intellectually separate what he has accomplished from the policy perspective from the, from the stylistic changes we've seen in the presidency as a result. So um, I, 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 I don't know. I think you're right. I think that the, the anti-Trump critique is becoming increasingly difficult because you really have to be willing to make the argument that style and substance are one and the same. And I just think most Americans and most people don't see it that way. Right. Mitt Romney does tweet, right? He does tweet. He does tweet. And, uh, and you know, he's... Uh, He's been tweeting about the Olympics, uh, obviously, because yeah, of his What does of he his see heritage. Twitter? What's, what is his use for Twitter? What does he see it as a springboard for? Well, I think, you know, particularly in, in this campaign, um, it is going to be an opportunity to, to communicate and to reach out. And I think, you know, in the 2012 campaign, that's the way that we used it. Obviously, Twitter has changed even since then mm-hmm. and, and has become just sort of this rapid-fire way of getting a message out there. Um, and, and so I think the campaign is going to use it use it well, but I think he does see it as a way of disseminating a message in a way where he's got complete control of the message. Right. right? So we can, we can talk about all sorts of stylistic things that candidates can do to show they're of the people, and you can talk about putting on jeans and going and sitting down and having a cup of coffee in a diner and all the stuff you endured in 2012 in New Hampshire and places like that, Lottie. But from a policy standpoint— you're advising a Mitt Romney or some other Republican running for the Senate in 2018. Your advice to that Senate candidate when they go into their state and they want to talk to people about issues, what issues do you propose they talk about? Well, I think, it, first of all, they need to recognize that the issues are going to differ from state to state. So they have to really get to know and understand their states. And, and for, for most Republican candidates who are running this cycle, um, it's going to be very easy because it's the the life that they've led, that they've been in these communities and they've seen it. Right. Um, but but I think there are a couple of overarching themes that that people are expressing concern about. Uh, one is that while the economy has been generally doing well, and while the stock market, with maybe with the exception of the last two weeks, has generally been been pretty good, um, people still feel a sense of anxiety about the scope and and the future of the economy. And that economic anxiety is part of what drove President Trump to victory in 2016. And in 2018, it continues to be a factor that I think people are worried about. That's anxiety based on what? Job security, your savings, your housing? I would say increasing costs, Mm -hmm. whether it's health insurance or groceries or gas or consumables. Um, It's growing costs coupled with maybe some job insecurity. Um, the fundamental changing nature of the economy, and everyone keeps hearing that the robots are coming for them, whether that's a 2018 problem or a 2028 problem, we'll see whether it's a problem at all. But um, you know, there, there, there is that set of concerns around, around those issues. So I think there is this economic anxiety, and I think that is related to the continuing challenges we're seeing around opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. That is an issue in many states, many Republican states in, in particular. Um, I, I think that there is concern about... Um, uh, the immigration system, 
because it's been such a, a big topic of conversation and what needs to happen to, to fix it and, and rationalize it. And the last thing I would say is, you know, foreign affairs, I think, are on people's minds as well. The continuing threat from North Korea, you know, ISIS continues to, to pose a threat right. uh, as well. So I think people have a lot of concerns on their minds, but, but the most overwhelming important thing is when you go into a state, really figure out what are the specific issues in that state that are that, that are that are on voters' minds. Let's talk about one other issue. As a young dad, you can appreciate this issue, and you wrote about it in the New York Times this week, and that's health care. Lonnie, where are the Republicans on health care these days? After, after Boy, what we can agree, it was a I, pretty rough 2017. If I, if, I, if I had an answer to that question, uh, I, I'd probably go off to Vegas right now. It, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. I would say there's a couple of factors at play. First of all, 2017 was a very difficult year, mm-hmm. and the defeat of health care reform of Obamacare repeal and replace in 2017 was due to many things, but I think the, the biggest thing we discovered was that Republicans actually have a lot of disagreements when it comes to health care policy. It was very easy to talk about repeal when President Obama was president because there was never going to be a replacement package. Well, now that President Obama is not the president, um, it, it's much more complicated than that. And so this year, I think part of the challenge will be can Republicans get on the same page maybe on a narrow set of policy changes? And so this could go in one or two directions. I think one direction it goes in is Republicans – some Republicans will try to do what they can to stabilize some of these marketplaces, which are driving up. Uh, we're seeing some significant premium increases in some of these marketplaces for people who aren't getting subsidies. Middle, middle class Americans are really getting hit hard by premium increases. So part of what some Republicans might try to do is, look, we, we will go in and try and stabilize the mechanism of the Affordable Care Act. So I think that's one option. Mm-hmm. The other option is you could see sufficient consensus, consensus around trying to empower states more. And there was a proposal at the end of 2017 that was introduced by Senators uh, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina that would have basically taken the money that Obamacare was spending on health care and given it all as a single block grant to the states. That structure obviously is, is pretty bold. Mm-hmm. Um, that structure alone would not draw all 51 Republicans right now in the Senate. But some version of a federalist solution I think could get pretty darn close to 51. And so I think you'll see a lot of work behind the scenes in 2018. If Republicans hold the majority in 2019, I think you will probably see health care be back on the agenda again in a pretty robust way. But 2018, I think, by and large, because of the election, um, while there is significant pressure from the Republican base to do something about Obamacare, right. uh, I just don't see too much actual activity happening. You just year. answered my question if we're going to see a revisit to this in 2018, and you're saying it's a... I think it's a 2019 proposition. Uh, let's talk for a second, Lonhe, about Mitt Romney's running mate in 2012. Speaker yeah. Ryan, who you talked to. Yeah. You're, you're tight with him. Um, where's Paul Ryan's head these days? We keep hearing rumors that he might not be the Speaker a year from now, not because he loses the election, but because he might actually leave Congress. Do you, well, do you buy that? I mean, I think all that is premature. I think he, he Paul Ryan is about doing the job he, he has before him the best way he can. And being Speaker is a really tough job. It's a job that I, I, I don't envy and I don't think I'd ever want because you've got Republicans that are pretty divided on ideological and policy mm-hmm. uh, grounds, and you've got this issue of the president, which also continues to divide the party to a certain degree. And so um, Paul's got to manage all that. Now, um, he is, I think, doing a, a great job as speaker. I think he's got a really tough job, as I said. Um, what the future holds for him, I, I, I don't know. Um, but suffice it to say that he's not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. I think this is going to be a really tough election, and he's focused on winning a Republican majority in the House. Hoover, distinguished fellow. 
Well, I, you know, I'd love to be able to spend more time with him, but I think honestly that the job he has is the job we need him to be doing. It's interesting. When's the last time you talked to Kevin McCarthy? I, I don't talk to him very often. No, um, no I don't. Um, but, uh, you know, he is somebody who I think is doing a good job of helping Paul to keep the troops together when they need him together. Right. And he's obviously got a great relationship with the president, which I think is helpful, too. Right. And speculation about Leader McCarthy these days is that he is a kind of a crossroads that Kevin McCarthy, on the one hand, could be the next Speaker of the House if Speaker Ryan steps down. Yeah. But there's also rumor growing around town lawn he could be the next White House Chief of Staff. Well, you your, know, your advice to him, he <laughs> make sure everyone does their background check, gets through their background check. I, I, I you know, I think that um, Kevin McCarthy has had a remarkable career in politics already. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about sort of going from a staffer to going um, into state politics first, I think, and then going into the Congress. Right. right. Um, he, he and then obviously rising to majority leader and having the opportunity to work closely with the president to get his agenda through. I think if, if he got picked for that job, it, I mean, it's it's such a tough job. I mean, talk about the speaker's job being tough. Being chief of staff, you know, how do you manage the administrative mechanism of the executive branch, plus be an advisor to the president, plus, uh, you know, keep your head out of trouble? I mean, it's, it's a very, very difficult set of things. I think if the president were to go to someone like Kevin McCarthy, he would do it because Kevin McCarthy is used to hurting cats. And he's used to having to manage some really difficult problems. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways he could be very good. But I I hope John Kelly remains, I think, despite the challenges that there have been in the last couple months or weeks, rather. I think he is um, he's done a really admirable job in a very difficult situation. And he's clearly brought order and discipline to the White House, which Mm -hmm. is which is needed to, to get things done. Just out of curiosity, did you ever cross paths with Rob Porter? Um, he was part of the Romney transition in 2012. Was he at uh, Harvard the same he, time he, he, he played or? some roles? Yeah, I think we may have overlapped um, at, at, at some point, maybe for a year. Mm-hmm. I didn't know him when I was at Harvard. but His but we father did, is Roger Porter, right? And I did. Uh, his father I've, did, I've did known you? well. I taught for him. Oh, you taught for Roger. I took his yeah. class when Roger I was an Porter, undergraduate. Roger for those who don't know him, is... Uh, Roger Porter's professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard, but more, more, perhaps more significantly uh, to the current conversation, he was uh, the chief domestic policy advisor to President George H.W. Bush, right. and he taught a great class. He still, I think, he still teaches a great class at Harvard on the American presidency, and and would spend a lot of time telling war stories from the White House, which was just spectacular for you know you're a 17 year old undergraduate getting to hear all this cool stuff about the White House. It was a lot of fun, so I enjoyed. It. I took his class. Then when I was getting my doctorate at Harvard. Uh, I taught that class as a TA with him and got to see it again, but from a different perspective. And he was also uh, very helpful to us during the Romney campaign. And, 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 and you know, his family, um, you know, has been a, a, was a, a great family, great, great part of the, the Harvard institution. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the situation with Rob is very distressing. Um, and, and I don't know where it's going to end up. But, but suffice it to say that Roger Porter has had a huge influence on the lives of many Harvard students. Yeah, uh, the story fascinates on levels, a lot of levels, one of which is just kind of a quintessential Washington story of of who Rob Porter was, and he was a very big deal behind us. He was Orrin Hatch's chief of staff at one Yeah, he was. I think he, he was for Rob Portman yeah. at the time. So this is a fellow who was just on a path to just really great glory and, in Washington. And, and White House staff secretary is a huge job. Right. I mean, the person who controls the flow of paper and information to the president of the United States, a lot of people don't realize who the staff secretary is. It's a huge role. Several staff secretaries have gone on to be very powerful federal judges. Right. Uh, they've gone on to great roles in, in politics and government and public policy. So um, it, it's, it's all very unfortunate what's happened here. Have you ever been to the Bohemian Grove? I have not. I've heard a lot about it, but yes. no, I've been. 
Uh, I've not either, and I probably lost about 99% of our audience at this point. Uh, but Bohemian Grove is a very exclusive retreat, and it's divided into camps. Um, is, is the Republican existence in Washington Lawn is it also divided into camps? You know, I, I think that it has been, but to a certain degree, I think those camps may have consolidated a little bit because, yeah. you know, when the president pursued his tax reform legislation last year, mm-hmm. uh, it, it really brought together a lot of disparate interests in the Republican Party right. because tax reform is an issue that Republicans have been for for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, yes, there are camps. Obviously, there's a group of people who still does not care for the president. But but the majority of Republicans, I think, are in the camp of we'd like the president to be successful. We want to be supportive. There'll be times we disagree, and we will voice those disagreements. But by and large, um, you know, there is a there is a desire to continue to try and move Republican governance forward. Is Marco Rubio in that camp? Oh, I, you know, look, I think Marco um, has you worked has, for Marco. In yeah, I did. I think I think he's been. Um, I think he's worked with the president on a number of policy issues, and I think that he. Um, I think he absolutely is somebody who would speak his mind if he saw some issue that he disagreed with on of the president on. But, 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 but he's been um, he's done a good job, I think, of focusing on Florida. As the senator for Florida, uh, he's been deeply involved in a number of issues that affect Floridians, and he's also had a, a, an abiding and deep interest in Latin America mm-hmm. and policy toward Latin America. And he continues to be a leader on those issues, and someone who I think potentially, uh, you know, has a has a bright future to come in, in Republican politics if he you, if he wants it. You would not see him taking on Trump in twenty. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't see that. I mean, I don't. I don't have any personal knowledge of his plans, but I would be very, very, very surprised if he were. Um, which does not mean that at some point in his life he won't again seek the presidency, and I think he'd be terrific if he did. Well, how old is he? Is he, what, 40? He's young. I mean, he's, he's in his 40s. His 40s yeah. Right? Well, I think I think more like mid-late 40s, if but yeah. If we map it out, let's see, he was re-elected in 2016, so right. he'd run again in 2022, so he could run in 2024 yeah. if he so yeah. chose. Yeah. Interesting. So when the Republican, when the immigration proposal came out in the Senate the other day, Lonnie, I looked at it, and I was very interested to see the Republicans. This gets back to the idea of the camps. The Republican senators whose names were affixed to that. And I saw, for example, Tom Cotton was in the middle of it. Tom Cotton, who's somebody I'd put in sort of a very conservative, young conservative camp, if you will. Uh, if you took Mitt Romney to the Senate, in today's Senate, and wanted to cluster four or five Republican senators around him for sort of a, a group think, here's our proposal, who would you who would you put on that team with him? Well, I, I think it might actually be quite eclectic because Romney is someone who's able to draw together, um, you know, interests from many different parts of the party. And, you know, he's he's obviously – you look at a guy like Rob Portman, senator from Ohio, right. who we got to know quite well during the 2012 campaign because he was a stand-in for Barack Obama in our mock debates. And so Mitt and, and Rob have gotten to know each other over the years. And, you know, I think Portman is somebody – who, who I think Romney would certainly look to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about a guy like Tom Cotton, who you just mentioned, right. from Arkansas, young, uh, you know, very talented. Um, I, I actually think very thoughtful on, on a number of different issues. He's someone who, even though on immigration, he probably is a little bit to, to, to the right of, uh, you know, maybe where Romney is, where some, some others are. I could see Romney working with a guy like Tom Cotton as well, potentially to forge agreement. Um, and then, you know, people who've been around for, for longer as well. So um, there's not necessarily one group I think Romney will, will, will house himself in. I think he will be a senator who is able to work with many, many different types 
of Republicans and Democrats. I don't think he's going to limit himself to working with Republicans. I think I think that's a great thing about him is my that next, my next question. What, yeah, name a couple Democrats he would look at across the aisle. Well, you know, I mean, th- th- there will be issues where he will have common cause with with some really strange bedfellows, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so you know, while it's tempting to think, well, he's going to work with the Joe Manchins and Heidi Heitkamp, some more moderate senators, if they're around still next uh-huh. year. We'll, right. we'll we'll see if they're around, but. Um, you know, I think I think there'll be issues where he'll want to get together with with folks that that are you know maybe more progressive if the issue suits. But he's not going to limit himself um, to a certain group of people. Right. He is going to work with with anybody to, to to sort of move the country, to move Utah, move the country forward. Utah is an interesting position to be in as a senator, Lonnie, because you can look west. And what do you see when you look west? You see three of the most progressive states in America. They're all Democratic operations, yeah. executive and and um, and legislative. If you look north and to the east, you see Republican states. And you look south, you see kind of the new west. So Romney, by his disposition, his temperament, is he is he a new west guy? Do you think? Um, I you know look, I think he um, he spent a lot of time in the west certainly, mm-hmm. and I think Utah Utah's an interesting state because as you alluded to. You have this combination of innovation, but also, um, you know, a, a, a deep sense of Utah having values that, um, in many ways, are going to be countercultural with other parts of the country. You know, value for family. Um, you know, certainly some of the traditional positioning on social issues, um, uh, economic conservatism, um, that sort of culture and that sort of. Um, uh, notion of those values being significant and important. I think, you know, Romney is sort of imbued with those. And, uh, you know, I think his goal is to bring some of those values to Washington. Lonnie Chen, I enjoyed the conversation. Congratulations. It looks like you may have a new friend in Washington. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States and Mitt Romney. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Lon Hee Chen and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dr. Lon Hee Chen is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Lon Hee Chen. You spell that L-A-N-H-E-E-C-H-E-N, at Lon Hee Chen. Anything else I need to plug, Lon Hee? No, that was very helpful. The more followers, the better. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45 talking about flu season. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.